Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everybody. A very warm welcome to the Hong Kong Theatre here at the LSE. My name is Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications. And I run a think tank called Polis, which is the LSE's international journalism think tank. Indeed, I used to be a journalist. Not as talented as James, but I used to be a journalist. And I'm really, really delighted to introduce you all to James Ball. James is a man who's done many things in a short time as a journalist, most of them very, very good. I'm proud to say that we co-wrote a book together about WikiLeaks, which is one of the places that James worked at. The first one was The Grocer. It was, yeah. The Grocer magazine. That's where he started his illustrious career. Uh, and then went to... The Bureau. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism, yeah. where he's also returned to later on, which is a fantastic independent investigative journalism uh, outfit. And then he went to work for... Then it was WikiLeaks. Then he was the went to work for Julian Assange. And of course, Julian Assange teamed up with The Guardian, <coughs> and James ended up The Guardian. And since then, he's worked at really interesting places like BuzzFeed News. Back when that existed. When, it's, when it existed. Um, he didn't kill it off, but it is no more. And he's written some fantastic books, including the one with me. And this latest one, QAnon, is for sale outside. So help yourself and support the wonderful Pages Bookshop when you do so. One little note to say that this is being recorded. You are being recorded uh, when you're asking questions as well. So what we're going to do, I'm going to have a conversation with James about the book and some of the issues it raises, and then very much go quite quickly to get your comments and your questions. Okay? Great. So, James, he's just recovering. He, he got stopped and searched at the police station. At the train station, at thankfully. The train station, right. <laughs> Not the police station. Not, sorry, at this train station, yeah. Perhaps they know something we don't. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, may, maybe the authorities are trying to stop the truth coming out. Yeah, trying to stop the truth coming out. First of all, I want to ask you, you've done a variety of books. What made you turn your research attention to QAnon? Um... I think there are several reasons. Um, one of them was sort of a question of the very core of QAnon, when it began, was kind of so obviously ridiculous and so US specific that people sort of thought it could never go widespread. And it's now kind of become the conspiracy theory that's eaten all the other conspiracy theories. It's global, it's merged with anti-vax, it's merged with 5G, it's merged with various other conspiracy theories. And so how did this thing that seemed so ridiculous it would never catch on become the new sort of one conspiracy to rule them all? And so there was sort of that question. But there was also, you know, I've been interested in information and misinformation for a long time. You know, I wrote Post Truth back in 2017 and things have only got worse. And it's partly if you don't have a trusted shared information ecosystem, you can't tackle any other issues. Yeah. You need to have some sort of trust that you are hearing about the world, roughly what's actually going on. You know, no one's ever got to go, I 100% believe the media and I 100% believe politicians. And, you know, I pity anyone who does. Um, but unless you've got some shared facts, you can't have a debate. You can only have a shouting match. Okay. And so I kind of feel like unless we work out 
how to keep that shared base of facts, we can't fix any of the many, many other things that are going wrong. Right. The book was called Post-Truth. Uh, how bullshit conquered the world. Yeah, so this uh, is a very which, natural, <laughs> which was uh, yeah. a sort of fun title to write when I wrote it, and then I sort of ended up having to say it on Radio Four in a cathedral, and I felt terrible. Yes, good. Um, let's start with some. Um, I don't know how much people know about QAnon, but just give us a, a potted history on how it kind of started. I first became aware of it pretty much in 2018, I think it was. Yeah, but it started a little bit earlier than that. It started on um, 4chan, which is, in one essence, it's just a bulletin board. It's a web forum. In another, it's where a lot of things on the internet are born, good or bad. It was where Rick Rowling started. It was where lolcats were born. It's, you know, the home of a lot of memes. It's also an absolute cesspit of trolling and racism. But sort of early in the Trump presidency, there was a sort of tendency amongst like left-wingers and liberals to set up fake accounts as if they were insiders of departments. So, you know, you'd have DOJ resistance and they'd be tweeting out as if they were staff who were resisting Trump orders, etc. Right. And there sort of came a little bit of a right-wing backswing of that where, especially on 4chan, people would pretend to be inside uh, the CIA or inside other things. And so people kind of knew it was a game. So you had CIA Anon, which was someone claiming to be in there. NSA Anon had been taken. And so someone started QAnon, which is based on Q-level clearance. Right. Which is a classification just used by the Department of Energy, which manages nuclear material and waste. That's the main thing it does. And so it was sort of someone coming a bit late to the party. You wouldn't have picked it first. But the Q drops were brilliant. In yeah, the... explain, explain <clears throat> how it announced itself with the, these drops. So... Essentially, it's just another anonymous user. You know, you, you don't have a username on 4chan. So it's just an account saying Q-level Q patriot. And it was essentially saying that um, Trump was imminently going to arrest a cabal led by Hillary Clinton for various crimes against the nation. It would sort of offer up what, what it called breadcrumbs or little enigmatic clues of things to watch for. Uh, it posed a lot of questions, you know, why have uh, reserves been called up in all 50 states? Why have, you know, ask any reservist, you know, what they've been told about next weekend type stuff. And so it seemed like it was offering ways to verify, but it was very much always sort of promising some kind of imminent action within the next week or two. Right. If that didn't happen, when that didn't happen it would imply that the delay was because the action was going to be even bigger. Right. It was essentially that Trump was fighting a deep state, sort of satanic, paedophilic cabal led by Hillary Clinton. And that, that was the core and the root of it, uh, and that Trump was winning and had a secret plan. And the odd thing was, obviously, at no point did any action come. Yeah. And yet, here we are in 2023, and Q is still very much alive and So well. explain, I mean, how often are these drops happening? Is that every day, or is it every week? Is it kind of... Several times a day, sometimes. Right. Um, they got less and less frequent, and then they stopped entirely for about three years. And how is the traction growing for, for this? Is it still incredibly niche, or is it... So, <clears throat> it spends about a year being mostly contained on 4chan. 
And the thing with 4chan is people on it are very obsessive and are very active there, but there's not many of them. Right. What happened to popularize it was it hit the mainstream sites. It first hit YouTube and then it hit Facebook. And so a key thing to know about QAnon is that most people in QAnon have never read a Q post. Q himself is actually pretty much irrelevant to QAnon now. It kind of started out with people following the words of him and so on. But, you know, a bit like uh, Satoshi with Bitcoin. Right. He's sort of faded into the background and into the mythology slightly against his will. He tried to do a kind of resurface earlier this year, just as I was going to print, actually, really annoyingly. Um, but it sort of turned into influencers would be sort of packaging up and bundling queue and doing explainer videos. Right. Um, then other people saw that that was doing numbers and jumped on the bandwagon, either cynically or enthusiastically. And then you started getting Facebook groups and Twitter accounts and all of this. And honestly, for about three years, it was just allowed to spread almost completely unchecked on every major social network. Yeah. And the irony, isn't it, that <coughs> it's been banned from places like Facebook or they're trying to reduce it. And yet, and yet it has gone very much more visible in the sense that literally people at Trump rallies have got the T-shirt. Yeah, so it was after January the 6th, it was banned on all major social networks in what was a very, very double-edged sword. Um, in the book, I actually talked to someone whose mom has gone very into QAnon, and weirdly, it reunited her with her estranged sister, right. uh, who is also obsessively in the QAnon movement, so QAnon, bringing families together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, God, if, if, you clip, if you clip any of this, please don't use that. <laughs> <laughs> but he said she'd kind of been in it, and he lives with her. She'd been in it, but they could kind of carry on their normal life until it was taken off Facebook and YouTube. He said because she found QAnon Telegram channels. And he said once she was in that kind of more radical closed group, it became an 11 hour a day obsession and she wouldn't talk to him about anything else. And so the danger once something's really sort of established is when you close it, you might restrict its access to new people, right? but you really just foment it in yeah. the people who are there. But yeah, the efforts to control it have got more difficult because people use the word Q and QAnon less often right? and instead talk about, you know, either vaccine concerns or concerns around child abuse or concerns around other things. You don't want to suddenly ban any discussion of vaccines on your platform. You want to keep the actual dangerous misinformation off if it's, you know, mm. a, a provably false dangerous claim but they're not manually reviewing everything. You certainly don't want to take anyone who's trying to talk about tackling child abuse down. Or, and the thing is as well, you can't even go, well, look, the idea of an elite paedophile ring is ridiculous. You know, what kind of conspiratorial idiot would believe that? When we've had Harvey Weinstein as crimes, Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein even more obviously, you know, the idea that you can just sort of go, I will ban anything that says QAnon, and that will fix it, is for the birds. So it's still out there. And of course, 
Trump has got more and more open in his embracing mm. of it. And indeed, many other Republicans. Yeah. I mean, you've got several elected congressmen who are fully signed up to QAnon, even if they claim not to be. But Trump isn't sort of dog whistling support for Q now. He's playing its theme song as one of his rally like opening bits. So this is coming quite close to being the Republican Party platform, which yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. And so in that sense, there's not really a typical QAnon supporter because you don't actually sign up. They do have a little pledge of allegiance do they? If, oh, you right. want, if you want to do it. But, um, right. but the interesting thing about QAnon is it's a conspiracy theory that you might find a sort of Hollett and Barrett mom signing up to. And you might also find her like PT obsessed weightlifting teenage son signed up to as well. Uh, people sort of come at it from the left and from the right. One of the leading QAnon influences in Germany is a uh, vegan yoga instructor. Right. A lot of people are sort of pulled in through the wellness world into QAnon. There is a lot of sort of routes through from either personal trainers and sort of fitness types who often have the kind of angry young men, distrust of politics, distrust of media. Yeah. Um, but you get a lot of people through yoga or alternative medicine or those kind of channels because you are predisposed through those to mistrust Big Pharma. It's not silly to mistrust Big Pharma. Um, but if you get further along that, people get pulled in through sort of vaccine conspiracies, COVID conspiracies. Yep. And once you start thinking enough of the system is institutionally corrupt, that thousands of people will act against the public in concert. If you think they'll do it for one thing, they'll do it for, they'll do it for another. Yeah. You know, it's again, not irrational for people once they believe one conspiracy strongly to find others very plausible. Yeah. And so you do have this route in where you sort of have European left and US far right believing the same conspiracy. And again, part of it is that a lot of the language of Q is very adaptable. When some people talk about the globalists, they mean the Jews. And it's sort of a very clear, they know what they're doing. They're very explicitly talking about a Jewish conspiracy. And when other people say globalists, they mean globalists. They mean a sort of international elite. And so you can kind of get pulled into yeah. what at its root is the is blood libel, is the sort of anti-Jewish ritual child abuse sort of conspiracy theory that is one of the oldest in the world. Blood libel has existed since the 11th century. Yeah. It's very unifying in that yeah. way. And Hugh himself, you're very sure in the book who he is. Yes. I mean, what's interesting is there were always suspicions around who Q was. And one of the early suspects was this South African guy who was sort of just an early and enthusiastic believer. And the New York Times has done some linguistic analysis and said with a fairly high degree of confidence, in its early days, Q was him. But what happened was Q got convinced by the operators of a rival to 4chan called 8chan. It's actually called 8kun now, but they're sort of deliberately, it's spelt K-U-N, but they're deliberately doing something with that pronunciation. So I'm going to stick with 8chan. 
he sort of got persuaded by them to say that he'd move over to there and only post there. And then there is very, very strong evidence to suggest that the owners of the website nicked his account. And they then, it's Jim and Ron Watkins. They're, they're very interesting characters. There's a great podcast on Audible by a good friend of mine, Nikki Wolf, called Finding Q. <clears throat> and they piece together the evidence and eventually sort of find uh, Ron Watkins on a kind of ranch in uh, rural America. And they try and pay him a visit and he's not in. And he essentially uh, then sends them a very weird video where he threatens to shoot them if they call again. Uh, so they didn't make a return visit. But there's quite, quite a lot of other evidence has corroborated that basically once it got to 8chan, they kept up the queue post to keep users on there. Who are they? I mean, are they sophisticated um, <laughs> no. ideologues? Not especially. I mean, they've operated a lot of very dubious websites. They're right. essentially kind of bottom feeders of quite extreme content. Um, they didn't found 8chan. The guy who did is a really interesting guy, Frederick uh, Brennan, who sort of lives with multiple disabilities and sort of said it made him a very kind of angry young man who enjoyed trolling. Yeah. And he set up 8chan because 4chan wasn't nasty enough for him. Um, he sort of then sold it and then kind of renounced it and, you know, recanted and, uh, you know, apologized for what he did. Right. And he's actually been working for a couple of years to try and get it shut down. But yeah, essentially 8chan had marketed itself as a place to post what you can't even post on 4chan. I don't think Ron and Jim Watkins have much ideology. They'd probably class themselves as libertarian. You know, they've made money through pornography, they've made yeah. money through all sorts. So our hunch is that they don't really, didn't ha actually have any real meaning for them either. It was just a, a narrative that attracted attention. Yeah. I mean, th bear in mind, if you're going to steal the Q account, that's a sort of pretty good sign that you don't think it's real. Right. If you believed Q was real and was posting insider info and you nicked his account and stopped him doing it, you would be on the side of the cabal. Yeah. So <clears throat> only someone who either knows it's nonsense or has decided it's nonsense is going to do that. So I think we have to view it very cynically on their part. Yeah. And it's a bit subtle, but do you think it's now reached the stage where that doesn't matter? Oh yeah, Q stopped mattering a long time ago. Um, because, you know, QAnon now isn't just the idea that Donald Trump is fighting the deep state, you know, and the deep state isn't just the US and Hillary Clinton. It's sort of got meshed in during lockdown with a lot of the anti-COVID stuff because you can sort of pull all the threads together what really, really, really didn't help was when uh, Klaus Schwab, who's the head of the World Economic Forum, who um, run the Davos conference each year, he decided to put out a book called The Great Reset, um, which, I mean, was already an existing conspiracy theory. And given a lot of people in conspiracies think the elite works like Dan Brown and hides like handy like codes and clues in everything, calling something the Great Reset was pretty terrible. Yeah. Uh, and people fairly cleverly and opportunistically just said that things were extracts of it. Uh, so they would just put 
all sorts of odd clips and things around. And so the World Economic Forum has become quite central to QAnon. They had a sort of speculative essay saying that by 2040 you will own nothing and you will be happy, which that's got sort of dragged in. Yeah. 5G, very much in the QAnon mold. Some people were sort of saying it was part of population control or testing. Some were saying it was part of covering up moving kids in tunnels. Yeah. Uh, I, a big belief in this is that there are about a million children in tunnels underneath the US and various high numbers of children in tunnels on other countries. So, um, but 5G got pulled in, anti-vax got pulled in. So there are influences now, there are movements. There are people who are pretty Q adjacent now who've probably not heard of QAnon. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a lovely thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, so you're talking about something that is, in a sense, deliberately unfounded. That's the magic source in a way, isn't it? That it, you can't prove it, you don't need to prove it, because that's the point of a conspiracy. But as you hinted at before, it had, at least in the early days, it had said a lot of things were definitely going to happen that didn't happen. And yet it becomes more, more popular, more people believe it. What is that syndrome about conspiracy theories like this? That it's sort of quite a known one. Um, the best study of this comes from uh, Doomsday Cult in the 50s. And a sociologist actually sort of went and tagged along. And they were sort of followers of this woman who said the world would end, let's say, on you know the 20th of July. And she'd said that she'd been contacted by a sort of benevolent alien spirit that was going to like elevate them before the planet was destroyed. And so they were all sitting there and they'd had to take all metal off their bodies. You know, they were sitting sort of with that. One of the sociologists who went there, they thought he was just a cult member, uh, had studs on his jeans. So they like helped him rip them out and sew his jeans up, all of this. And, you know, they were waiting for midnight to come and the signal to come. And of course it didn't. And what sort of happened next was quite interesting in that about two people left and the rest all stayed. And she initially sort of offered a different date and people waited for that date. They sort of repeat the exercise, nothing happens. And then she eventually said that because of their virtue and you know, their faith of that small group, the apocalypse had been spared. Uh, they'd saved the world. Right. And <clears throat> what was sort of amazing was you had a brief moment where quite a few of them expressed quite a lot of doubt in her. And then almost all of them snapped back. And you saw this when Trump lost. Uh, there were a couple of dates announced that the real election results would be called or the Supreme Court would put Trump back in or, you know, he was letting the deep state think it had won and X mm. would happen. And when the sort of big day they'd agreed came around, which was, I think, about a week before inauguration and nothing happened, you saw a surprising number of Q commentators, but also quite a lot of Q accounts kind of go, that's it, Q's over, you know, it's finished, you know, I'm out kind of thing. And then two or three days later, everyone had just decided something else was happening and got back to it. Yeah. People once you've sort of subscribed to a cause it's very hard to move your brain off it yeah one thing i really have to stress is conspiracies don't happen to other people or to stupid people 
They happen to left-wingers, centrists, and right-wingers. There are conspiracies of the elite. There are all sorts of things people believe that aren't true. There are people with Nobels in physics who are absolute conspiracy theorists. This is not something that happens to other people yeah. or to stupid people. And in fact, you know, there's some studies that suggest more intelligent people are more likely to get pulled into conspiracies. Yeah. And let's follow that up a bit, because obviously there's a sort of presumption, you know, in a nice place like the LSE, which is full of, you know, evidence research and very sensible people trying to do good things in the world. You know, and this is a, at some level, it's a kind of anathema. You know, the idea that people believe in something that's not true or not provable, at least. And we know that it has damaging consequences like the pizza gate, you know, the shooting, you know, crazy man goes and shoots people in a pizza restaurant because you yeah. think, you know, but also lots of lives that disrupted and a lot of hatred and so on. So what can you do about it? What counters it if you want to counter it? So once someone is in a conspiracy, it is immensely difficult to pull them out of it. And one of the very counterintuitive things is that largely you shouldn't try to challenge them on it. Conspiracies kind of work like cults. QAnon operates like a cult, but it's kind of evolved a very neat self-induction policy. So Scientology works very well at inducting people because it sort of boils the frog very slowly, you know? It, it starts with a personality test and some free counselling and a bit of advice and then the counselling gets more and more intense and they start offering courses and sort of by the time you're sort of in a cult you've sort of been pulled in so gradually and gently that each step was a small one you're never asked to take a huge leap QAnon's equivalent is do your own research and so what that means is you'll start at the bit that seems most credible to you. And so there are routes into QAnon through Epstein, there are routes in through Gates, there are routes in through anti-vax. And so you might start with a quite credible mainstream scepticism around, you know, well, come on, did Epstein really kill himself? Watch a few The Truth About Epstein videos and sort of pull yourself in through elite child abuse, you know, because of course he knew Trump, he knew the Clintons, he knew, you know, you name it. And then by the time you're in the fully bonkers stuff, it's not that much different from the last thing you saw. And then you might be more open, now that you believe the top is so corrupt, to believe that they're planning to depopulate the planet or to do any number of other things. And so the thing with a cult is it wants to cut people off it wants to pull people further in and keep people further in. And, you know, QAnon does encourage people to cut out people who won't sort of subscribe to it. Because if you start sincerely believing the world is being run by child rapists and murderers who are planning genocidal activities, and other people around you are going, that's nice, dear, you know, what's for tea? You know, it seems quite strange to you. And so once someone's in, it is the work of months and years to get them out. It is de-radicalization. And if you ask anyone who's involved in that work, they tell you it's very intensive. And it also only works when the person wants to be de-radicalized. 
And so essentially, you have to wait for the person to want to leave the movement uh, or to have doubts and then to sort of handle them very gently yeah. sort of out. And what about the rest of us, though? How do you sort of stop the message spreading? There isn't really a silver bullet. You know, people used to like kind of go, well, if we just had better fact checks or if we had balanced articles, etc. I think part of it is making people aware of these sort of conspiracies and the fact they will always exist and to sort of know how to assess them critically. You know, we, need, we do need better media literacy, but the media needs to learn how to cover these sort of sympathetically without kind of going, look at what these wackos believe, which is often the tone of it, you know, or it kind of assumes that because someone's got pulled into a conspiracy that they are hateful in some way. And a lot of this actually does come from legitimate grievances or legitimate senses of disconnection. In technical terms, you know, what the danger comes not when a new conspiracy theory or cult emerges on 4chan, but when it spills over into Facebook and YouTube. And what we really need is to be a lot more proactive at monitoring those sort of connections. I sort of, you know, in the book, I liken it to what, what gets called the wet markets in China. You know, it's places where it's the digital equivalent of where sort of jungle or where very rich sort of disease areas where disease mutate a lot come into contact with cities. The sort of boundary between 4chan and Facebook is that. And if YouTube and Facebook had been a lot stricter on QAnon a lot earlier, we probably wouldn't be talking about it today and I would have written a less bleak book yeah. about something else. <laughs> it's quite interesting that metaphor you use about pandemic because we discovered you can sort of do something about a pandemic, you know, um, you can find a vaccine, for example, but you're also saying that it's not something you can inoculate people against. It is a bit like the COVID vaccine. You know, you can still catch COVID after you've had the vaccine. Right. Uh, it just makes it less likely and less severe and makes right. it spread less. You can inoculate people against conspiratorial claims. If people have sort of heard the claim and heard a bit of explanation about why it's not true, they're less likely to get pulled into it. Yeah. If people are aware of the sort of rhetorical tricks that conspiracies use to be so compelling, uh, you know, the just asking questions trick, the yeah. sort of these kind of things. It's just you know, another point of view. It can inoculate you, you yeah. know, you know, why is the media not covering this is a great way to pull someone into something. Yeah. Um, you know, X is connected to Y is connected to Z. You know, what does yeah. that all mean? Okay, you so know, uh, and so you can inoculate people. You can have the equivalent of a kind of public health service that's trying to stay ahead and look at what's coming up and sort of, you know, be a bit of an early watch on these kind of videos should be you know, you don't necessarily have to ban things. You can deprioritize them off the algorithms. You can put content checks on them. You can check what they're being recommended with and sort of curtail yeah. that. There's things you can do that don't have to be ban anything you disagree with. Yeah. And there's a sort of hint of optimism there in your voice. But <laughs> on the other hand, you did write a book with the said we're in a post-truth world. And now you've written another book about how compelling uh, conspiracy theories are. You use another 
interesting sort of metaphor about this idea that we have to get used now to the idea that politics or political ideas or ideology is now more like a meme. It's a sort of viral thing, like you get a viral uh, yeah. meme on uh, social media. And it does indeed literally work through things like social media, but it has a sort of virality that's got little to do with yeah. evidence. I mean, these things, it's interesting. I sort of get asked about deep fakes and AI fakes and all sorts uh, pretty routinely. And I tend to kind of laugh it off and go, you know what? I, I mean, in terms of misinformation, I should say, things like um, deep fake pornography and that kind of thing is a real problem affecting actually yeah. people I know. You know, I, I know people it's happened to and it's horrendous for them. Um, so not to sort of make light in total, but in general on deep fakes, I tend to laugh it off because I wish that was the problem. I wish we lived in an information world where convincing fake video was the bad thing. As it stands, if you stick a quote completely made up in front of someone's face and make an image out of it, it'll go viral. You know, you do not have to be sophisticated to put out misinformation. People really do tend to retweet stuff they believe. Um, and this can be big or small stuff. There's things like use pens at the ballot box, which is a very cute conspiracy theory that seems to imagine that if you're rigging an election, you rub out the pencil thing and do another one rather than just put in a whole box of fake votes. Right. You know, um, Theresa May's husband owns G4S was a big one. You know, you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg had all of his money in Russia, which is why the sanctions were delayed. Yeah. You know, all sorts of stuff goes round. And it is just a fact of life. You can't just go, it's all Russia, because it isn't although they tend to be involved. You can't just sort of say that. The way the internet works is that stuff that grabs the most attention spreads. And that's not the fault of the algorithm, that's the fault of human nature. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, we tend to go for the most dramatic version of the story, the most sort of interesting version of something um, and, you know, we're all a little bit guilty of this. We all sort of know what to say to sort of say, oh, no, we like nuance. We want the truth. We want detail. We want both sides of the argument. And then what we actually click is the sort of, you know, the barn burning, <laughs> sort of barnstorming version of our own take. Boris know. Johnson's illicit daughters. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, and look, you know, there's, this is not of the right or left or the centre. You know, I write for the New European. I clearly um, remain leaning. And good God, FBPE Twitter is one of the most unhinged corners of Twitter for mad conspiracism. I apologise to any FBPEers in the audience. I love you, really. Yeah. <laughs> you better do, do that. Uh, I'm going to come to you guys for questions in a minute. There's just the last bit I wanted to ask you about was you used to work on BuzzFeed of all places. You know all about morality. You know, and also you've been an investigative journalist who has, you know, dug away. I mean, you went it, going right back to WikiLeaks, who's dug away at hidden truths. You know, so I kind of think, and you're a techie kind of person, so you'd be a great conspiracy theorist, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, well, this this is, and that's because partly there's this article that I was reading, an academic article, which talked about um, QAnon as conspiracy fictioning which I think is a really interesting word. The, the fun of it, the joy of it, is the narrative and the storytelling 
yeah. as making sense of a world, or just for the fun of it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as odd as it sounds, a world run by conspiracy is a more appealing world than the real one. Uh, even if, like, the idea that the world's run by a corrupt, awful cabal, who, you know, elections are a sham, there's shadow governments, at least the stuff that sucks in the world is someone's fault then. You know, there's the sense of if there was just some way to get rid of them, stuff would be okay. It's actually, in a way, less bleak than, oh God, there's no adults, no one's actually in charge, this mess is this mess, and it's yeah. actually all really complicated and doing stuff is hard. Yeah. It's a lot less satisfying. Every movie has a villain, yeah. uh, and real life not having a, a sort of big bad is really narratively unsatisfying. And, you know, the key thing to remember is QAnon did start as um, a live action role play, that the early people involved in it knew they were playing a game of fiction. And it, it is essentially, you know, it's almost Jumanji. It's a game that's got out of control and become the world. And I don't know if this is true, but I think we all have become people who love conspiracy narratives. I think of so many of the uh, kind of Netflix dramas and BBC and everywhere else who've got these sort of secret state intelligence type dramas, you know, yeah. often in different time zones or different time shifting uh, science fiction and so on. We all really love it. Don't I we? mean, uh, who doesn't love a good conspiracy? I mean, you know, and look, I mean, I've, I've reported on enough real ones, you know, there's things like companies paying billion dollar bribes to get oil fields. There's you know, the absolutely shocking extent of the state's secret surveillance capabilities. You know, we had sort of the, the cover-ups over Gitmo and the Iraq war that WikiLeaks sort of put out. HSBC, Swiss Bank was amazing. You know, they, yeah. they arranged for a um, British businessman to uh, take out two million in cash in a briefcase, uh, which is very much against the rules. Yeah. Uh, you can't just go, can I have two million in cash for no reason? Uh, and get it, and yet they did. And so we do have all sorts of secrets and conspiracies, and can I tell you a secret? Are there any more irresistible words in the English language to hear? So yeah, of course we love these, of course we're fascinated by these. I am in several conspiracy theories. Um, you know, some of the Snowden ones, some of the WikiLeaks right. ones, depending who you listen to, I'm in the pay of the FSB or MI6. Okay. Um, they, they should pay you more. They really should. I mean, honestly, th this is the thing. If people saw the state of my flat, which is rented, um, they would kind of, if all these people are paying me off, I'm getting a really crappy stipend. Yeah. Uh, you know, Integrity Initiative even, um, which was the idea that it was a foreign office plot against Corbyn. Um, it's quite interesting when you see yourself in them as well. And I'm sure I'm going to see more of it with this book. Um, so. There's nothing like, you know, writing about this stuff to sort of do it. And I, I should say as a disclaimer, uh, I have actually been paid by George Soros and Bill Gates um, because I worked for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which in turn gets its funding from not-for-profits. I was at one point being paid by four billionaires, nice. which uh, really, really did make you wonder why your salary was so low. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts.
Now, back to the event. So, do we have any questions from the floor? We've got loads of them, that's fantastic. Put your hands up so I know roughly where everyone is. Okay, great. Can we start with the lady in the white top? Thank you uh, so much for your presentation so far. I just had a question on the, the book and some of the work that you've done. Have you covered any links between QAnon and misogyny and incels, and particularly violence against women, and whether you explored that in, in any way in your book? Absolutely. Yes, I did. And I think it's part of the root of it, actually. I do sort of confess in the book that I used to hang out on 4chan myself as a teenager, which is probably less of a shock to the world than I would hope it was. But it was new when I was there. And so I won't pretend it wasn't pretty foul then, but people sort of spent a few years being, there's not a polite way to put it, sorry, slightly rude word coming, being dicks on the internet and sort of being sort of a bit low-key, sexist, certainly homophobic, as teenagers are. And then most people got in relationships, got jobs, went to uni and left. And so you sort of had people roll through and grow out of it and sort of realize that wasn't great, was it, kind of thing. But what happened was if 80% of people left, 20% of people stayed, and they were the ones who weren't getting relationships, weren't getting jobs, weren't getting out, and were becoming increasingly embittered. And also, you need a bigger trolling high to get the same hit. It's like any other addictive substance. You know, if sort of Rick rolling was funny once, you start then showing people porn or violent videos or, you know, your behavior gets more extreme. And then the next set of people coming in are coming in with those people already there. And you end up with this increasingly sort of radicalized, foul, misogynistic group because the people who stay are the ones who have the most issues. QAnon's actually sort of fueled by institutionalized sexism in another way though, which is perhaps more interesting, which is if you look at where research goes in medicine, very little of it goes on conditions that primarily affect women with the exception of breast cancer and a couple of other. Most chronic pain patients are women. Most people with fibromyalgia or ME or various other sort of conditions are women. There's very little research and there's very little in the way of treatment. And so women quite rightly lose faith in the medical profession and in the medical system. And they sort of start looking at alternative medicines, etc., which is fine. Right. But then they often go down that pipeline further and end up radicalized into right. QAnon or anti-vax or so on. And so, you know, I think there's a habit to go, oh, yeah, silly hippie women. It's like, no, actually, they, they have good reasons yeah. to move from the medical establishment and to move into it. So there's sort of a pincer movement of institutional sexism of academia, the pharma industry, the medical profession, driving women into QAnon, and the sort of horrible inbuilt misogyny of the incel movement and of 4chan driving young men into it. So it, it is a big factor. Okay. Take one right at the front, please. Thank you. Um, I want to pick up a point that you made about Oh, well, of course, we don't do things like here, and we, we do things based on evidence. And we were talking about universities. Um, I was talking to my friend next to me when we arrived, and I was talking about Harvard Business School and behavioral science. 
and there is a Department of Behavioral Science in this place and just around the corner. Now, this appears, and I am making no judgments at all because I've only read respectable, at least what I think is respectable media about it, but there appears to be quite a lot of potential contamination coming out of precisely the sort of place which we think it ought not to be coming out of. And just as a disclaimer, I spent quite a lot of time teaching behavioural economics in really? the past as well, so <laughs> I do not pronounce myself to be free, but I would like to say, you know, can, this contamination that is coming from evil things as we like to think some of it might be coming from places which are much more close to home and potentially much more respectable in the kind of environment which we are sitting in yeah yeah i'd completely agree it's actually a bit of a nightmare when you study conspiracies and misinformation because you end up looking at a lot of psychology papers and psychology studies and you know people want psychological explanations and the scale of the replication crisis in psychology is off the charts and almost every major effect is under doubt and is in review and so trying to actually find which bits of psych still stand up and which bits are thrown out and you know I studied economics and so you, you actually do more psychology than you think in that and having to go, so which bits of my degree were right um, is, is tricky and so yes there are many 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 components to our information crisis and i would never pretend that you know every institution has some part in it <laughs> yeah thanks let's go over that way a gentleman in the white something thanks very much for hosting the event tonight so uh, a question as a society how would we eradicate or minimize the effect of QAnon? because it's an international organization that's beyond borders so how you referred to how part of their indirect like recruitment process is, you know, do the research. So if the topics that are being communicated aren't being addressed, how do we as a society either minimize splinter groups like this or kind of lessen their global reach? Yeah, I think it's minimized. I think if we start talking about eradicate, we're going to have to set up the kind of apparatus QAnon thinks we have. Honestly, one of the best things you can do to mitigate the harms of things like QAnon are having strict gun laws. You know, there are several major mass shootings that were from people who were Q adjacent. Um, it is a good argument for, you know, controls like we have in the UK. Things like that help. The sort of slightly grim answer when people talk about polarization or about conspiracies or misinformation they tend to imagine that the fixes are all in media and information and there are a lot of those you know how do you prioritize search how do you move things down in algorithms how do you try and put sort of information framed in a way that's sort of welcoming to people who are on the edges of conspiracy to try and keep them out you know there's things you can do there but actually, people get polarized and people get extreme when people's prospects are bad and when they don't have much stake in society. And that tends to mean you need economic growth, you need fair distribution, you need people to feel optimistic about their future or about their children's future. And people are a lot less prone to conspiracy. It's a real measurable effect when about how well people are doing economically and how amenable they are to either extremism or conspiracies or both. 
And so the tricky thing is, you know, while we're in these slumps, these are going to be more widespread and more dangerous. And so it sounds really silly to say we need economic growth to tackle this, but we do. The rest of it is essentially about trying to stop new people flowing in and trying to keep up the conversation with people to sort of pull out of it a bit. You know, I think some people who radicalized during lockdown have probably pulled back a bit now that they're more out. I did actually realize I started researching this book during the first lockdown and um, I realized I'd spent a week spending about 11 hours a day watching QAnon videos, <laughs> going out for a, like for the one hour like mandated walk you're allowed yeah. and talking to no one. And you know where you're like, this is exactly what I warn other people not to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the pandemic had a massive. Oh, yeah. A very, very measurable effect. Yeah. Uh, I feel you should let that lady who had the mic. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Please, yeah, thank you. Um, but it's also about uh, not being in power in a sense I think and uh, being aware that you know the people who make the world go round are you know inaccessible to you and I was wondering if among them you have examples of conspiracy theory and where does it come from does it come from competition between them some sort of paranoia I don't know I would be curious to know because you you said yourself that there were all kinds of, of people that were adhering to this thesis and then the other thing I, I would be curious to uh, hear your uh, point of view about is uh, how to deal with information because in a sense you know we can have this kind of uh, that you were talking about the kind of healthy skepticism when we hear the mainstream media things like that and then we are at risk of being dragged into this theory but then the other position is to be like okay I'll never know anything I never really know what will go on so I can read stuff but I'm just a cynical do you develop some arguments about how to deal with information and, yeah, yeah you, you actually used the two exact words that I used there uh, really helpfully I sort of try and encourage people to treat all media skeptically, but not cynically. Try and go, you know, what sources are they quoting? How well backed up is this? Is everyone in this anonymous? If they are, have they given me a good reason why they are and tried to at least signal why they know what they know? You know, that skepticism, just going, oh, well, this is in a Murdoch-owned paper, so this is just going to be the government line. That cynicism, you know, scepticism is actually empowering. It's, it really gives you more power and more control over what you believe, what you look at. Cynicism feels empowering, but actually just alienates you. And so I'm very pro-scepticism and very anti-cynicism. In terms of sort of, there's a really interesting sort of connection in what pushes people into conspiracies and how they go out of control. And um, Ben Franklin was actually the cause of a major conspiracy theory, uh, and he did it by deliberate misinformation. Franklin was trying to get the UK to pay reparations to the US when it won the War of Independence. And so he produced fake US newspapers that were writing up imagined atrocities and what he alleged had been done. And the idea was what was allegedly done was British troops had uh, 
bribed Native American tribes to attack and murder American civilians, including, you know, gruesome stuff like wearing their faces, etc., stabbing babies, you know. And this was only meant to circulate in Britain. Uh, and the idea was the British public would feel so appalled at what their government had done right. that they'd put pressure to give reparations to the new United States of America. Of course, what happened was some of the papers found their way back to America and people thought they were real, got rightly very outraged and committed atrocities against Native American people. Right. And it's all about what groups are likely to believe something? What prejudices does it speak to? Who's the in-group, who's the out-group? And Franklin's was terribly targeted at the British public. It was clearly never going to get the huge upswell of let's, let's repay Americans, but it was very well targeted to working class Americans. He did a, a dreadful thing, even if he didn't intend it. And so, you know, QAnon started as a game. It was a, a sort of bit of role playing and it got out of control. People sort of don't realize the power of some narratives to take off and go a lot further than they mean. And actually it is why I wish politicians would be more careful when they dog whistle. You know, America, the American Republican Party is almost openly embracing Q. We are not in that position here, but there are some very nasty dog whistles that come out of the government on some issues that, again, yeah. could go a lot further than they intend them to go. Uh, just quickly on that thing, how much of this is a very much a US thing? Because America has, as you said, much more polarised publics, much more excluded publics, much weaker moderate public service media, um, and they've always been a bit mad. They had a civil war and things, didn't they? You know, unlike Europe, for example. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. QAnon, on every measure, it should just be a US phenomenon. And obviously it has a bigger following there than elsewhere, but it's got a really significant following in Canada. Right. Uh, there is a self-declared Queen of Canada who is a full QAnon believer. You know, the convoy movement there ended up very embroiled in that. Um, the armed sort of coup attempt in uh, Germany, uh, do you remember there were a few hundred plotters were arrested? Yeah. That, that had QAnon ties. Um, the various um, Australian and New Zealand shootings right. um, had ties to 4chan and to QAnon and the incel movement. Um, you know, it's in France, it's in the UK. I think people are quite, in the same way as you see fringe parties rising in a lot of countries, you see this sort of belief in a lot of countries now. And so where the US goes, the world tends to follow. Yeah, okay. More questions, you had your hand up all the time, thank you. So uh, when you were talking about solutions to a post-truth world and to countering misinformation, you brought up two points that I wanted to ask you uh, a bit more about. And the first was, you know, to make people more aware of conspiracy theories that could proliferate. And the second was you briefly brought up like a public safety, government run like fact checkers. And I, I was thinking like, well, you can't exactly do that. You can't make like a committee of truth. That wouldn't really work. How do you tell people to be aware of conspiracies and then at the same time not turn them off of the true conspiracies like WikiLeaks. <laughs> yeah. 
Good. I mean, magic, very, very good question. I wish I could go, yep, like this. Um, there are conspiracies in the world. You know, some of these things are real. I tend to be in a minority of people in that I think um, JFK was shot by the gunman from the library. Most people do not believe that. You know, it's uh, interesting in that each of us have some conspiracies we believe. We might be right, we might not be. You know, I also think Epstein killed himself, which a lot of people think I'm very credulous for believing. But he was engaged in a very long-running conspiracy. There, you know, there are things that get uncovered. I'm an investigative journalist. It's my job to find conspiracies. So, you know, I think part of why I cover them is I want to respect them and take them seriously because I think conspiracy theories make it harder to tell the stories about real conspiracies because the real stories are less glamorous sometimes and they're less terrible. You know, once people are believing there's a million children hidden in tunnels being abused, it's quite hard to get people to care about what real systemic child abuse looks like. And so I care about these because I want people to pay attention to real conspiracies. So part of it is tackling that. Um, I'm very anti-fact-checking, actually, to the point where I have fights with friends who work as fact-checkers because I basically think their work is pointless. Um, it has some use for ministers and government claims and checking those, but sort of, you know, is Hillary Clinton secretly a paedophile? Fact-check is a waste of everyone's life. You know, no one in QAnon is going to read that and go, well, Reuters says she isn't, so that's enough for me. Um, I think where you might want governments to look into it is to fund research into what works to counter it. So, you know, funding independent research to look at, you know, are there ways they could change how they put out official figures? Uh, so things like FBI missing person figures get cited all the time by QAnon, but they're totally misunderstood. And so could they put them out more clearly so that if people link to the source, it's obvious what's really going on. You know, they can look at their own comms and how their own comms can do that. Um, they can look at helping do best practice for outlets when they're covering these issues, that sort of thing. Um, you cannot have a Ministry of Truth, no. Um, what's interesting is how often people who specialise in disinformation totally screw up announcing these kinds of initiatives. Um, the Department for Homeland Security actually tried to have a sort of advisory board on disinformation and it sort of just put it out in a bit of a mangled press release and said nothing else on it and within hours it was being covered as Biden's uh, Ministry of Truth. It was in Homeland Security which made it sound menacing. It's actually someone I'm, I'm on quite friendly terms with who was leading it, a woman called Nina Jankovic who is lovely and slightly bonkers and absolutely not a sort of government propaganda head. Um, she, she sort of rewrote, um, I am the very model of a modern major general to be about misinformation once, you know, this is not a scary lady. Very good at, at what she does, but she ended up being the face of Biden censorship, basically hounded off the internet with death and rape threats. She resigned over the whole handling of it and the whole board disintegrated. So the Integrity Initiative was a foreign office effort to tackle Russian misinformation 
that ended up inevitably getting hacked by Russian hackers who put out all of its internal filings and mm. painted it as a conspiracy against the Labour Party that mainstream journalists were in. And so I literally got off a flight and found about 500 messages uh, finally confirming that I was a government stooge because what I'd done was do one talk at the Frontline Club uh, to some Eastern European journalists on countering misinformation, which was a talk I've done publicly as well. So it was one hour and I got paid £200. Uh, and, you know, again, if they think that's enough to make you a paid-up government operator, they think we work for really cheap. Yeah. Exactly. You know, come back when it's two grand, guys. Right. Uh, gentleman by the pillar. Uh, hello. I have a question about, with such a strong following, why isn't there more cases of, like, mass mobilisation of people who believe in the QAnon? And it just seems to be, like, individuals acting by themselves. Is there something about conspiracy theories that mean that people believe them but not act upon them? I mean, the thing is, you do have quite a few mass mobilizations, but they tend to be what's called sort of soft queue or pastel queue or queue adjacent groups. And so one of the sort of big queue spin-offs uh, was hashtag save the children, uh, which I should say has absolutely nothing to do with the charity save the children who have had to make this clear on several occasions. And essentially this is QAnon without Q. This is the idea that there is incredibly large-scale systematic child abuse that's being ignored, uh, by, and it's by the elite. Now, of course, again, can you call anyone crazy for believing this or being pulled into this when we've had the sort of Catholic churches scandals and various other, you know, care home scandals, etc.? You know, I do not blame people for getting pulled into conspiracy. But this was sort of almost an intentional front for people to pull into queue. And it managed, even during lockdown, to get simultaneous protests in about 60 cities globally. And, you know, there were a few hundred in most of them and a few thousand in the bigger ones. We had the anti-vaxxers here, didn't we? You had a lot of anti-vaxxers. Who were quite, they were quite belligerent, invading newsrooms and things. Yeah, but and if, if you watch the speeches of the anti-vax rallies as well, you very, very quickly get into QAnon stuff. It's not just anti-vax or concerns about it. There were quite big movements. There was January the 6th as well, which was very much fueled by Q as well as by Trump. So you get some mobilization, but I do also find it a bit odd that you don't get more. I think if I'd become convinced that a sort of cabal of a few thousand people was leading to the abuse of millions of children. I'm not sure I'd then go, right, cool, and now off to work. Uh, another one. Uh, gentleman here, and then I'm going to come to you. So I was watching the whole thing unfold around 2018-19 when it became more mainstream. Yeah. So I was watching uh, leaks on Twitter, you know, people posting WhatsApp message groups uh, and following some commentators on, political commentators on Twitch. And... What surprised me about the whole thing was how high-level politicians from the Republican Party, how openly, how brazenly they adopted the whole ideology. What was her name? Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think. Yeah. 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 She was like, oh, our great military will, uh, will support President Trump to take back the country and all of that. 
Uh, my question is, is this a tool for them to, you know, uh, appeal to their voters or do they actually believe those things or is it a mix of both? I think it's a mix of both. Um, I think Trump gets high on his own supply um, and I think he likes the idea that he's some heroic resistance leader as long as he doesn't have to do anything to earn it. Um, I think the people in the Republican Party at the top care about very little other than being in power and staying in power. You know, this is not the Republican Party even of 10 years ago, which was sort of ultra low taxes, small government, big military. This is about power and cynicism. And if tapping into this is what it takes, it's what it takes. You know, populists pay attention to these kind of movements because if you talk to them, you get a very, very animated base. And also, it makes life hard for your opponents. You know, if they're getting harassed and harangued and getting attacked with this stuff, it makes their life more difficult as well. And so, cynical politicians tap into dark forces, you know, tale as old as time. From your experiences, is this now the, the platform of the Republic Party as it stands? Yep. Oh, this, it's this the, is terrifying, especially yeah. the elections coming on. Yeah. yeah. Um, do not forget, they have probably a 50-50 chance of winning the next election, yeah. maybe slightly better. Yeah. And, you know, as, as badly as Biden's approval ratings are, when they test other candidates, they all do worse. Biden is by far the best chance the Democrats have of holding the White House. And it's very, very difficult to hold. I think there's almost a problem without being alarmist. I think there's one of the problems has been that the sort of liberal left, whatever you want to call me, has sort of not taken it seriously. We've been sniggering quite a bit in this thing. We've been saying, well, what a joke. How could you be so stupid? And um, then when we see the politicians doing it, we think they're not really serious about that. And yet we just had in this in the UK, we just had the, the new conservatives and they were using very cue adjacent language about the threat to our moral security and I, things like that. You know, the woke blob that apparently is running Britain. I, I should know. add that Scott Morrison denies this, but um, one of his kind of friends and aides got very, very into yeah. the QAnon movement and took credit for getting Scott Morrison's the PM of Australia, or was. Um, was. When he was PM, it fell upon him to do a sort of official apology on behalf of the nation for historical institutional abuse in children's homes. And when he did the apology, he called it ritual child abuse and talked about ritual child abuse several times. And this QAnon supporting aide took credit for that and said he'd been talking about it a lot with him and like getting those ideas in, in with him. And like this guy eventually sort of started alarming his own family so much that his sister called the intelligence agencies on him. So this stuff it gets quite close to power already. You know, it's not hard to see how someone like Orban or one of the other sort of Eastern European populists might see an advantage in adopting it. We're aware conspiracy theories that could serve the interests of the powerful because that's when they really get boosted. There's a lot of it in Putin, isn't there? Isn't it? There is a lot yeah. of it in Putin. I mean, the, the OK Groomer narrative pink sort of ties into that quite yeah. strongly. Yeah. Far away. Hi. I just wondered what the QAnon pledge was yeah, and at what too. stage in, in a QAnon supporter journey do people decide to take it? 
And does everybody take it? So I think very, very few people take it, but it's, it's this sort of quite radical core, but um, I can't actually remember the wording of the pledge. I will make you this promise. I've got, got it saved on my computer. The last, so, the last bit of it is, the, is, is a famous phrase, isn't it? it uh, where we go one, we go all. Right. doesn't even really make sense. Um, but uh, I will tweet it out later tonight. I will tweet it with some context. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great if I just accidentally uh, just <laughs> joined QAnon. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, but yes, uh, I, will, uh, I will post it up for you. And I'm at JamesRBUK on Twitter. They put a, a video of themselves saying it. Yeah. But um, Michael Flynn, who was uh, Trump's security advisor, recorded himself doing the pledge. That's quite scary to me. Yeah, yeah. Any more questions? Yes, sorry, that gentleman has had his hands up a long time. So I have two questions. Firstly, um, QAnon has been described as a decentralized movement, and how does this nature impact the movement's ability to sustain itself and attract new followers? And secondly, um, are there any common psychological or sociological factors that you believe make individuals susceptible to believing these conspiracy theories? And if so, what can we as individuals do to counter their influence and correct their asymmetric information? Good questions. I actually think the decentralized structure is a big strength of QAnon um, because it doesn't have a leader who can be exposed or fall down or be arrested or whatever, um, the sort of absence of a focal figure other than Trump, and Trump's sort of tangential to a lot of it now as well, means it can adapt. There's no one sort of saying, yes, it is this, no, it isn't that, yes, it includes this, no, it, there's no one to sort of say what is or isn't in it. And so that's why it's been able to adapt and mm. to morph so easily, and why it's pulled in lots of other conspiracy theories from longer it's sort of it's the conspiracy theory that ate all the other conspiracy theories it's a bit like in that sense it's a bit it has similarity to, to a movement like for example occupy yeah that sort of started about one thing yeah and then drew but also the, just not more. not having leaders yeah they, they, you can't arrest anybody you know yeah i mean you do sort of see these or anonymous back in the day yeah um you know you do sort of see them they're very, very hard to keep coherent if you're trying to push towards a goal. But if you're not trying to do that, it's, it's a very good structure. Um, in terms of traits that pull people in, there's a bit of evidence that sort of people who are slightly more intelligent than average are more likely to get pulled in. Um, obviously, the more time you spend online, the likelier you are to get pulled in. Um, but one sort of quite common factor is some form of alienation, either kind of being an out-group from society or a social group, or if you're in groups that are underserved by mainstream media, um, you know, you do sort of tend to see people who don't feel like mainstream platforms are talking to them or, you know, understand them, look to conspiracies quite often. And so, you know, to that extent, it is people who are being failed by existing. So basically, if, you, if you're worried that your, you know, friend is vulnerable, you should basically just take them out more. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> be, 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 yeah. be more friendly to them, be it's, more inclusive. It's, um, it, it's often used quite nastily, but the Twitter phrase, touch grass, 
which is sort of meaning you need to go outside and see the world a bit more. It's not actually bad advice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, should I take one more question? Got anybody got one? Oh, loads more. <laughs> as soon as I say that, right, okay. Gentleman in green, and then we're going to go to the gentleman at the back. So it strikes me there's a problem in defining what is a conspiracy theory and how that differs. I mean, we've talked quite a lot about how that differs from genuine scepticism. Because, you know, there's obviously quite a lot of conspiracy theories end up being true. I sort of wonder how you sort of think about how you even define what a conspiracy theory is. What I tend to say is the best conspiracy theories have, you know, about that much truth and then build something that big around them. You know, there tends to be a little kernel of something hmm. to them. It's essentially, it's when something goes well beyond the evidence. You know, what do you have enough evidence to suspect and what can you gather more evidence for? Where do you get to a point where you're actually going, well, no, this is false and it's there. Um, so for me, it's where you go well beyond evidence and when you need multiple institutions to be deliberately covering it up. So it's, in a way, it's the second word is the most important one. It's a theory. It's, you know, it's often, so they don't have to have the evidence, do you? If, it, if it's just a theory, then that's fine. You can just say, I think this is how the world works. It is also about, is it falsifiable? You know, what yeah. would make it false? There's a really good documentary about flat eartherism on Netflix called Beyond the Curve. And it's got this brilliant sort of scene where there's, there's sort of a few good moments in it, but there's one where they say, well, how come there are no flights between the sort of southern continents? The theory being because they're at the edge of the disc, they're actually a lot further apart than it looks. And it immediately moves you to a sort of professor sitting in her office who just got points at flight radar and goes, there's one. <laughs> there actually aren't very many, and it's because by aviation law, you've got to have an airport within 400 miles at all time. And the, there's only one very small airstrip in the middle of the Pacific. Um, and so that limits the capacity of planes that can go over it at any time. I've never ceased to be amazed about the rubbish you know. It's, <laughs> um, it's but, unbelievable. But the, the other really great scene in there is there's, there's an experiment you can do to prove the Earth is curved. And it's to do with getting slits of light elevated and one needs to be 16 foot above the other. And if you see the beam, that shows the Earth is curved you know, at a certain distance. And they do the experiment to streaming it, all of this to show the Earth's flat. And of course the experiment works, the light beams through and they're all like, huh. Uh, <laughs> and then you just get a little report a week later where they decide that they did it wrong and they've done it again and it worked, but they didn't stream it this time. Yeah. Uh, and I think that tells you where it's moved to theory. But yeah, I think we have to be a bit cautious. You know, I take conspiracy theory seriously again, because I want to point people at conspiracies. And so I think we shouldn't use it quite as dismissively as we do. And in some ways, perhaps, this is just a thought, but in the same way that um, we love science fiction, say, we don't necessarily expect the world to be like that, but it's a lovely way of thinking about the world. In a way, perhaps a conspiracy theory is a, a lovely way to think about the world. Yeah, you know. I, I, I do think it's more reassuring. It's also oddly empowering. You're part of a small group who knows the real truth. It gets you a community. 
and it tends to be quite an avid and loyal community because the rest of the world is against them. Yeah. You know, it does serve a valuable function for people. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, general at the back, yeah. Hi. Because I think QAnon has hundreds and thousands of followers, I was just wondering if there's any uh, widespread evidence of businesses or maybe even influencers using it to like, make profits or like push products and whether right. that is in fact spreading it even more because it's yeah. a machine. There absolutely are. There's um, people who make a fortune sort of podcasting, etc. you know, doing live stream type. There's YouTube type sites that aren't YouTube that you can still sort of put out content and monetize it. You know, there's a pretty good evidence a lot of the early YouTube QAnon influencers were people who just switched topics because they saw QAnon was hot and would make them money. Capitalism's capitalism. If there's a cynical way to make money, people will do it. And I can promise you there is loads of QAnon merch. I own some. <laughs> it's, it's one of these where sometimes you're going, should I monetize it? But there's a, a brilliant conspiracy theories uh, like Map that starts with QAnon and ends and just lists hundreds of related conspiracy theories and how they all connect. And it's it's actually in, in my flat and I sort of have to explain it if some people come for the first time and go, yeah, so I research these. <laughs> I, I don't believe them, I promise. Yeah, who knows? So listen, James, thank you very, very much for spending time with us. Um, the book's outside. Are you going to be signing some? I'm indeed going to be signing some. I will also say, this is two weeks before they actually go on sale. And if you buy one today, you will own it before I've got a copy. Because yeah. I haven't had my author copies yet. So they are that hot off the press. And uh, thank you very much for all those fantastic questions. Um, it's been really fun. Thanks, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.